you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John, really the beginning of chapter 8, right at the end of chapter 7. I don't know what all of your Bibles do here. Mine has brackets, and 753 is actually under the heading of 8. This morning, we're actually going back to capture this piece out of chapter 8, and I told you that we would do this when we resumed John next week. Uh, we'll continue picking up with 9-1 and move on in our study of John, and I'll have more to say about that in a moment. We'll read 7.53 through 8.11. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. They went, each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, may we see you more clearly and hear your gospel with open ears this morning. Lord, thank you for receiving in your own body the judgment that we deserved. May your spirit show us the reality of that and be at work in ways too great for me. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. text in front of us is challenging on a few fronts. Again, you'll notice that we're going back as we pick up with John. We're going back and then we'll pick up with nine next week. I don't know what it looks like in your Bible. Mine has a couple of brackets at the beginning and a couple of brackets at the end. Your Bible may also say something like mine. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. This isn't the only place in the Bible this happens. We saw this at the end of Mark's Gospel. You see it a few other places in the Scriptures. Far from removing our hope and faith and confidence in the Scriptures, it bolsters mine. Thousands of manuscripts across hundreds of years bring us the Bible. People dedicate their lives to looking at letters 
and words and sentences and paragraphs and whole sections, looking at fragments, very old fragments of the scriptures. So what do we do with this? Well, my answer for this particular text is twofold. It's not the way I answer all of them. One, it was included early in the Latin church. It was attested by early patriarchs, including St. Jerome and St. Augustine. It's found its place in the life of the history of the church. And two, in the modern, more modern era, modern with quotation marks, it's been preached in the church for centuries. Calvin and Luther preached this text. They gave commentary on it. It's benefited the church, and we submit ourselves to it. However, that's not the only hardship going on here. There are often other issues that have crept into the church dealing with this text over time. As our world has grown more and more morally relativist, this text has come to the fore for some of those. Can we ever look at someone and say something is sinful? Sometimes people use this passage to say, you can't judge, and there's a sense in which they would be right. But we still have to have the, the ability as a people to say something is right morally and something is wrong morally. Sometimes it's even given with the tagline of, uh, let, you know, you might say something is wrong or make an observation, not judging the individual. And somebody says, like, you who are without sin, cast the first sin. You know, it's, it's, it's found its place in pop culture, almost. However, we'll see that that's not what's going on with this, either with the statement of Jesus or how he handles the whole situation. The setting is quite similar to um, other things going on in 7 and 8. Jesus is still in the temple complex. He's still teaching daily. We saw that the Feast of Booths was the context for 7 and 8. So he's there in the court of women, which is the outer court of the temple, and he's been teaching every day. You heard him say that he's living water, that he is the light. So with that backdrop, we come to 753. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. As we know, this would not have been uncommon for him. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down there and, and taught him. So that that's kind of sets us up for what's coming next. We have these really cunning accusers that are com coming on the scene in 3 through 5. We have this response of, of Jesus to the accusers, and then we have Jesus with the woman. And that's the way we'll frame the text this morning. So Jesus is doing what he does in Jerusalem. He's, he's teaching in his father's house. We know that he's done this since he was little. He was 13, doing the very same thing. And this would have been the outermost court, and we know that because of what happened, happens immediately after this. The Pharisees and scribes burst onto the scene. They bust up Jesus' teaching opportunity 
and they're dragging this woman behind them. Look at verse 4 again. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Have you ever looked at something, a situation, an individual? Have you ever been in any kind of situation where you've looked at it and you're just like, something's off here? First time I went to New Orleans, I was pretty young and our family went there to check things out and this guy was selling just huge discount, hugely discounted Rolex watches. I just couldn't believe it. Like I didn't really know what a Rolex was other than it's not a watch that I can ever afford and here this guy was selling them for 20 bucks each. Whoa. But even then as I was young there was something that it didn't quite add up with the scene, right? Have you ever experienced anything like that where, hey, what you're initially confronted with, what's going on, is it doesn't look right. It, that's the feeling I get when I read this. Something's not right. Something's not right here. Here she is. Twice the narrative says that, that she was caught in the act. She's caught in the act. There are several things wrong. We know from the very start, where's the man? Right? If you're going to commit this act, aren't there two people? And then they, they immediately refer to the law. Well, listen to the law. Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge all evil from Israel. Adultery was rarely sentenced in the life of Israel. I know we read the law and we're like, oh, that's crazy. There would be dead people all over our society. You had to be caught in the act. And guess what? If you catch someone in the act of adultery, there are two people present. Something's wrong. We're alerted from the very beginning that this is not a genuine situation. They're not asking Jesus um, out of curiosity for him as judge. In fact, we're told right there in verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now how is this a test? We know that they're off. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are out of bounds here. Uh, but how is it a test? They're, Jesus has options at least in the minds of the Pharisees. They always try to get him, right, by, by splitting him, uh, either pitting him against the government or against the religious authorities of Israel. Option one, which would not have been unexpected, Jesus could urge forgiveness. This would not surprise us. Uh, from the very beginning in John, we've seen this this incredible reality that God himself took on flesh and he came, he broke into the world, he became a baby. And he lived his life as one of love, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his son. The whole motive for his life is the love of God, which is rooted in his forgiveness of sinners. That should not shock us. But they would have been capturing him. See, he's, he's, um, look, he denies the law. Jesus is so much about forgiveness that he is, he, he denies the law. He's forgetting all about Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22. See, he doesn't doesn't even know his stuff. That's one option. Clearly, if the law is on their side, Jesus urges forgiveness. They would have him trapped speaking against the law of God. The other option, Jesus could take, take this stand on the Mosaic law. And agree that the woman is to be stoned for the sin of adultery and join in calling for the woman to be stoned to death. Is this how Jesus deals with notorious sinners? You see, life and death is on the line when it comes to sin. It just is. Jesus never denies that sin is a life or death issue. Ever. He never reduces the severity of sin, not one single ounce. If anything, he he jacks it up. He raises it even higher. He never minimizes sin, but he calls those sinners time and time and time again to come to himself, the gentle and lowly Savior. He calls them to repentance. He dines with notorious sinners. He calls a tax collector to be among his inner circle. A woman of ill repute would break open this very costly jar of ointment and pour it over Jesus, giving everything she had. No. No, he's not going to cast away this sinner to death. The horns of this dilemma are even bigger than than what's written here. Pink says this, listen, the problem presented to Christ by his enemies was no mere local one. It's not just what's going on in that temple court, he's saying. Continuing the quote, so far as human reason can perceive, it was the profoundest moral problem which ever could confront God himself. That problem was how justice and mercy could be harmonized. End quote. Where do justice and mercy meet? Where do they crash together? It's a question that all of us need to be asking. It needs to be spinning in the back of our mind. We all deserve justice. Christ is full of steadfast love and mercy. And the the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 103, he knows us to the marrow of our bones. He remembers our frame that we are dust. He knows the truth about us. We need mercy. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? What do we get as a result of our sin? Death. So which is it, Jesus? Here we have this woman. Is it law or grace? Will you show mercy or will you cast stones with us? All across the pages of this gospel, we have different people coming to Jesus with 
various expectations of him. They want something of him. They want him to answer in a certain way again and again and again. We see this. Hey, Jesus, would you validate my opinion? Hey, Jesus, would you, would you rubber stamp me doing this or that thing? Hey, Jesus, this is the way I view the world. Isn't it right? Look how good it is. I wonder how we come to Jesus. Do we pretend that we don't come to him loaded with presuppositions about what should happen? Surely we wouldn't come to Jesus to test him like this. None of us would would be so bold as that. But do we come to Jesus, the very Son of God, submissive? Wanting first to to listen to him rather than tell him our opinion or to put him in a position where he, he has to split either way based on our opinion? Do we come to Jesus demanding something of him? Before we move on to the ways that Jesus responds to either the Pharisees and scribes or to the woman, just think about her for a minute. Think about the wicked situation. Not just that she had done, but that she's in here. That these Pharisees and scribes did not bring the man, they brought her. She's there alone, accused, allegedly caught in the act, and suddenly put on tribunal in the outer court of the temple with Jesus standing there. And all these Pharisees and scribes standing around her. Imagine the shame of this woman. Imagine the fear and public humiliation, not to mention the threat of death. It has to be horrifying. She's utterly silent in the narrative until the very end when she will answer a question of Jesus's. Now let's consider his interaction with these accusers. Notice closely Jesus' first response in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now they had just put the question to him. His first response is silence. He bends down to to write something on the ground. Calvin says, and I love this, by this attitude he intended to show that he despised them. Christ intended by doing nothing to show how unworthy they were of even being heard. His first response was not to say anything. I remember when they tried to do something similar to Jesus in Matthew 22. They come at him about taxes. Right? Do you remember that whole scene? Jesus, everybody has to pay taxes. Do you pay yours? Jesus responds to them at first before he, he drops some incredible theology on them. He says, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, being aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? 
His initial answer is not to answer the question. He's wanting to to show what's in their heart. The issue Jesus has in both cases is that they, like so many of us who encounter him, are simply avoiding the reality of who Jesus is. You see embedded here, they've already made up their minds that this is not truly the Son of God. He's a troublemaker. He's a rebel rouser. And he's a threat to their power. And whatever they have to do to get rid of him, they're willing to do. They've already made up their mind. And they are not going to consider the reality of who he is. They aren't coming to him with real questions about his identity. They've decided already in their heart, there's no way that he is God incarnate. What is Jesus writing on the ground? I have no idea. The text doesn't say anybody who tells you that they do, they don't really know. Yes, people have guessed throughout church history. I don't know. I do know this. It would have been very common for teachers to write things on the ground. There weren't whiteboards present. I don't know. I do know this. The first part of his response was a non-answer. I'm not... He was showing them that he despised them. He despised their question. Because it's an end around who he really is. You are not coming to him with a question like this to test him, believing that he is who he says he is. And we read in verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He refuses to act as judge, and he says that time and time again, did God put me here to judge between you? Which is a really interesting question because he didn't come to judge others. He came to be judged by God for the sin of others. So what does this answer do to the scribes and Pharisees? How does it disarm the accusers? Because that's exactly what he does here. I think he does it in four ways. He disarms them. One, Jesus is citing the law. Do you know that this is from the law? Actually, the ones who accuse, those who say, we saw this act go on. We we watched it happen. They are to be the ones to execute justice. Listen to the law, Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you're so sure that you saw this. There wasn't circumstantial evidence allowed. There weren't recording devices everywhere. You're so sure that this went down. You do it. That changes things. So that's the first way he's pushing back at them. The next way is his his statement is about those who throw this first stone implies that they all were witnesses to the act. So this whole group saw this situation go down. Third, Jesus is implying that the accusers themselves, listen to this, 
are guilty of violating the law themselves, specifically the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. His statement, let him who is without sin throw the first stone at her, does not imply this. Only if you are sinless can you do justice. That is not what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, if only if you are sinless, then can you ever do justice in the world. That is not it. He himself is justice. Jesus is. He is not saying, if, you, if you've ever done anything sinful in your life, uh, you, you can't cast stones at her. No, he's saying you are guilty of the exact same things that you're accusing her of. He's putting them on the hook morally for being adulterers. So you you guys haven't done it. Well, then go ahead. By responding to the very heart of their own sin and by inviting them to carry out the sentence lawfully, Jesus is exposing the motives of the Pharisees and scribes. He's springing their trap. His answer doesn't comment yet on the guilt or innocence of this woman. That hasn't yet actually been revealed. Can we trust people who are putting Jesus to the test? This could utterly be a lie. On every count, Jesus is right. How do we know? Because the next couple of verses tell us that the mob leaves. Once more, he bent down to the ground wrote on the ground, and they, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Something going on. Jesus just utterly flays their heart. They know their guilt. And he silences her critics. He's not rendered a verdict yet either way on the woman, but he effectively silences the accusers and again goes back to what he was doing. So the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus in this um, procedural dilemma. But Jesus, as he so often does, he goes straight for the heart. He's not getting lost in in their procedural situation. He's not going to be bifurcated like that. He goes for their heart and he says, you're guilty too. Listen, this is is where this... um, The story gets so personal and so gospel for us. We too are all guilty. Every single one of us stand before a holy God guilty, deserving wrath and punishment. And just like he does with these accusers, Jesus removes all pretense of self-righteousness being held up by these men. No, you're not going to throw the first stone at her because you're guilty of the exact same things. We just read this in Romans 2. You go around judging people and you're guilty of the same things that you're judging other people for. It's one thing to think of all the questions we would ask of Jesus It's quite another thing to to know him personally, 
to encounter him and to be known by him. If you've encountered this Jesus, you know that you cannot argue your way out of the truth that he espouses. You cannot win a moral argument with him. You do not know the word more than he does. You do not love God more than he does. In short, the biggest failure of the Pharisees and scribes isn't, is, is not just this desire to put him to the test, is that they don't know him. That's their biggest flaw. They don't know him. They reject who he claims to be. That's the most dangerous error that anyone can make, is to mistake the identity of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so then we turn, not, that's, his, that's the way he deals with the accusers. And, and listen, to, to frame the, the humility of Jesus here, that's just on complete display. Because you have to remember how big John wants us to see Jesus, right? He is the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. You don't get any bigger than him. And what I want to see with this interaction is that power on display in humility. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And he stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Here we see the gospel, the good news, in very clear and concise ways. Jesus asked the woman where the accusers went. Did he know where they went? Did he know that they were already gone? No, this is a rhetorical question. It's a device, and the the function of the rhetoric is to have her look around. Because she's probably inside her head and and deep inside in fear. And he's like, where did they all go? She she comes out a little bit looking around. They're all gone. They're all gone. He wants her to know that. Then has, has no one condemned you? She replies, probably utterly astonished. No one, Lord. Then Jesus says two more things on which the whole thing turns. The first is this, neither do I condemn you. No condemnation. And the assumption behind this is is this, y'all, listen, that she was worthy of condemnation. The fact that he is offering her none implies that she deserves it. Neither do I condemn you. An incredible statement. The implication, again, is not that she is innocent. No, she deserved condemnation. Sin deserves condemnation. She deserves it. You deserve it. And I deserve it. Listen, Jesus is the only one who's ever walked the face of the earth who could look at a guilty person and truly, truly say, neither do I condemn you. 
No one else ever can do that. Because we deserve condemnation. These rocks should fly, not just at her, but at all of us. How could Jesus say no condemnation? Because he himself would be condemned. Not because he deserved it. He did not deserve condemnation. He He received our condemnation. That's how he could look at her and say, neither do I condemn you. That's not the only thing he said to her. Go and from now on, sin no more. Guilty. Guilty. Just because Jesus doesn't condemn her doesn't mean suddenly that her life was no longer lived in a moral universe with right and wrong before God. These two things together form the heart of the good news coming from Christ to sinners like us, guilty sinners who deserve punishment. But the reality is that He Himself bore our punishment. Listen to Mark 10, 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. He is going to be condemned He knows his his face is is headed there. He, He knows that's the trajectory of his life for our sake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Listen, he does not deserve condemnation. Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth that deserved no condemnation. But he was counted in his life, hanging on the cross. He was was counted as righteous, yet took our place. Over him was written sinner. Sinner. Deserving of condemnation, even though he, he had never done anything to deserve condemnation. That's how he could look at this woman and say, neither do I condemn. Because his face was set to his own death. Jesus doesn't literally become a sinner. He takes on the wrath and curse in our place. That's how we could read this assurance of pardon, this glorious good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, that's good news. I don't know where you're coming from today. I don't know what kind of week you've had. I don't know what is, what is on your soul and your brain. Listen to the good news of Christ. Neither do I condemn you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen, for Christians here, this is your status. For those who follow Christ, this is you. You are guilty and and so am I, yet in Christ we receive pardon like this woman heard. Neither do I condemn you. In Christ, that's what you and I hear. We receive his righteous record that we did not earn. We did not deserve. Christ receives the punishment. He was laid low in our place. A few points of application will end. One, notice the love of Christ. 
the complete meekness and humility of him, his compassion on display here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like this woman. Harassed and helpless and guilty, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Know that the same Christ watches over us today, church. Know that this same Christ has compassion for sinners in need of a Savior. Another point of application is this. We think being exposed in our sin is the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And time and time again, we see in the scriptures that it's the best possible thing that could happen. Here this woman is, and I'm not saying it's a great situation. It was a terrible situation. It was out of balance. They, they let the man go. He's probably one of their buddies. And they brought her. We think, we think being outed in our sin is the worst possible thing that could ever happen. If, if that happened, we would feel like, man, there's a part of us that just life is over. And yet, as we see in the scripture, time and time again, for us to be truly known by God and by one another is the most freeing possible thing that could ever happen. This is freedom for her. Primary application of this text is Jesus atoned for our sin with his own body. The, the rock deserved to be thrown. It did. It did. And he says, I'll take it. That's atonement. I will cover you. You deserve to have your blood shed, but, but mine is going to be shed in your place. He's not saying sin is good. He's not saying Deuteronomy 22, let's take an eraser to that. No, because of that, he came to die. And the last point here is let us hear the master sending us out with blessing and telling us to live in light of this forgiveness. It's exactly what he does to the woman. Go and sin no more. That's the sanctification call. That's a call of becoming more and more like Christ. Are we going to perfectly do that in this life? No, but more and more sanctification, becoming Christ-like is progressive. And it's the grace of God. That's exactly what we read again in Romans chapter 2. It's the grace of God that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that leads to this kind of life formation. Let me end with this quote, Martin Luther. If you have, ta have tasted the law and sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here and see how sweet in comparison the grace of God is, the grace which is offered to us in the gospel. Listen, if you know the pain of sin, if you know the ache of it in your heart, look to Christ. Know the sweetness of this good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for our study of it. Would you help us, Lord, to see this wonderful gospel on display, realizing that we are sinners deserving condemnation and that you, Christ, were laid low for us. 
Thank you that the story does not end with your death, Jesus, but because you were raised from the dead, we have hope. That's why we gather even today to worship you. Thank you. Shape us, mold us more and more. Let us hear this call to go and sin no more. Shape us, sanctify us in your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.